0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast, where we talk about all things related to athletic performance, rehabilitation, and wellness. My name is Dr. Michael Falk, and I'll be hosting this episode. This is going to be a new format for us. It's going to be an episode where our staff at Kinetic Sports Medicine sits down and discusses a topic that we think is particularly relevant. This month, we're going to talk about ACL rehab, And we took questions online through our Instagram, and we're going to go into detail and answer those questions to the best of our ability and discuss a few other topics that we find important related to ACL rehab. If you're an athlete that is going through an ACL rehab or a clinician that works with athletes rehabbing ACLs, you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. I'm Dr. Michael Falk, and today I'm joined by Dr. Brett Fursell and Dr. Lauren Falk. And this is going to be a new format of an episode. We're going to call these like a kinetic roundtable episode. We're going to try to do about one a month and really focus in on one topic, try to take some questions online um, and have a little bit of a discussion similar to like what we would do in our staff meeting, essentially. So... Um, this month, our focus on all of our social media platforms and, and blogging and kind of uh, outward education things are on ACL rehab, and so this podcast is really going to focus in on ACL rehab. So um, I think we're going to go ahead and just dive in. We got a lot of really good questions from uh, uh, Instagram with people that wanted to wanted us to dive into certain things, so we're going to just start kind of discussing some of these questions and see if we can uh, provide people some answers. You guys ready? Absolutely. Yep okay um i have a partially torn acl um is it normal to still not be able to to run um, this person said it was like in about march of last year so
1: about 10 months ish yeah um i mean i think whenever you so i'm assuming that by saying you have partially torn that you've done a conservative rehab approach being non-surgical you know i think that under a traditional rehab but that's also usually commonly surgical we see people running sooner than 10 months out but you know part of the reasons why you're not running could be a multifactorial situation it could be the amount of instability you have from your tear not depending on the grade of it it could also be driven by your strength that's affecting your mechanics to be comfortable with running um you know running is a very sliding scale in our clinic, we don't necessarily just pick a certain time in which you should be running by. We look for strength and movement characteristics that tell us and tell you that you're physically ready to be doing that. So that's how we approach that step. Um, and obviously, there are a lot of other clinicians that could do things differently, but that's kind of our rule of thumb that when we see the physical capability, we move towards that skill.
2: Mm-hmm. So Brett, you, you look like you want to jump in on this one. <laughs> I just wanted—I would quickly say no, just because ten months of not being able to run is very extensive. So I would usually rewind and just seeing what's stopping you. Um, is it a weakness? Is it some deficit that you have? Did you have an incomplete rehab, or did you just not do any rehab um, to see what's missing there? Um, and then on top of that, maybe over time you did develop more instability, and maybe that's your barrier. And then maybe you need to reassess, um, see a PT or a doctor to see if there's more structurally wrong with your knee that's giving you that sense of instability that's not letting you run but short answer i would say is no and i wouldn't just keep doing what you're doing because if you can't run at 10 months um your ability to run at 11 months just knowing this asking this question will lead me to believe that you probably will be just as challenged
1: yeah so in general we have not personally probably cared for someone that has had such difficulty at 10 months. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, we don't know all the factors. Yeah. This is,
0: I'm going to have two points. I agree with everything that Brett Lauren said. Um, anytime you're not seeing progress for an extended period of time, we really recommend like taking a step back and just looking at the bigger picture to see what, mm-hmm. what's missing. Um, the, the, The other thing that I'll touch on is we kind of divide people that are either trying to rehab a completely torn ACL, um, conservatively without surgery, or with these partial ACL tear diagnoses um, into two categories, like basically copers or non-copers, just people that seem to do really well, and they might be completely ACL deficient, but they're not really having instability with their activities. Um, Some people, for a variety of reasons, just it really doesn't, um, they don't do well with that, and they... Um, just really struggle to make progress so um, that would be the other thing that I would look at is are you kind of following into one of those two categories and maybe just that even though it's technically only partially torn there's more instability than um, an MRI may lead people to believe and, and that's giving you uh, a degree of, of issues there so I hope that's helpful with that one. Um, Next question is more on the subjective side. So best approaches for keeping people,
2: uh, keeping morale high when outcome measures don't show improvements. I can start with that one. Um, I know several of the people that we have worked with and I've worked with um, may come to us a bit later and technically behind schedule with air quotes and progress sometimes can be stalled for a while in terms of the tests that are actually taken. And I'll say that with a grain of salt, that it's only the tests that are actually taken. I'd be willing to bet that there's some type of activity or something that has progressed in that time, whether it be in pain, whether it be you can go up and down stairs better or you can run a little bit better or do some type of activity with better quality, even though a number might not say that you made improvements. So any of those things I will still say is progress, even if a number might not say it. And then secondly, if you are just relying on numbers to show improvements, we all have good days. We all have bad days. Maybe in just that day, you happen to have a bad day and it didn't represent the big picture. So if you can look overall big picture to see how things are going and not letting just the numbers guide how you're doing, there's probably progress that has been made.
1: Totally agree. It's hard for you guys to see this since you're listening to us, but we always have this picture of like this linear progression of, you know, going from low on the graph to up high on the right on the graph. And like, that's kind of what everyone thinks rehab should look like is like, you know, just each day is a step day forward and I'm going to do more and all the above. And sometimes it's actually that it goes up and down and it's like this like rocky hill if not mountain sometimes where you're good like brett's saying like you're gonna have highs you're gonna have lows some of those days are gonna have little quirks to them of like why you didn't do so maybe you were tired maybe you were fatigued from your work what whatever the case may be and i think there are definitely times in rehab when you reach certain plateaus like you kind of as soon as you get rolling you see this like it's like you came hard out of the blocks and you see all this change and then all of a sudden you kind of feel like you're at a plateau and that's where the small details matter. You know, like when we do a jump test or something like that, you might still jump the same distance, but maybe you did it with exponentially better control or a better landing position or other things that are indicators of progress. Like Brett was explaining, there's a lot of small details that matter. So I think our best advice is set the expectation that rehab is never a perfectly linear Happy go lucky process. It's a lot of work and a long process, and expected to go up and down. But you know, end result is, you know, what we are all aiming for.
0: Yeah, I agree. And just having bite-sized goals, like it's don't just the focus isn't getting ninety percent quad index um, from day one. Yeah. Right? It's to get sixty percent, and then seventy percent, and then eighty percent. Like break down those goals into. Um, goals that you are able to see there and and have fun with rehab it can be a a grind um
1: you could learn a lot about your body while you're doing it improve your movement quality while you're doing it
0: yeah but but have fun and um it's something that uh podcast that came out last week with rob lamb um, that he talked about that he uh, kicks all of his acl rehabbing cases like out of the clinic um, every six weeks he gives them a week off um just to kind of deload that's it's not something that we've ever done in such a structured way. We do encourage people to take breaks, but he he has it structured into the plan like every six weeks that they get a week off just to break up that nine-month process. So lots of good options there. Um, are some people actually full out by six months after surgery? All right, Brett's too nice, so I'm going <laughs> to answer this one first and then I'll let everyone else chime in. Well, the question is,
1: are they and should they is the conversation. <laughs> uh, the answer is no. <laughs>
0: well, should they? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we 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 think we need to get away from saying that this is a 6 to 9 month rehab process. Yeah. Um, this is a 9 to 12, 9 to 18, uh, really 9 to 24 month rehab process and that's what we need to start talking about. The 6 month thing if you're an athlete comp- competing in a cutting pivoting field sport, that 6 month thing needs to probably go away. Yeah. That being said, return to play decision making is complicated. And there are personal factors with people that are willing to take more risk at certain points in time. So, um, for example, if there's a professional athlete that has a million-dollar bonus to play in a game at six months. That million dollars might be worth it for him to take an uh, increased amount of risk or something like that. There's all these contextual things that we cannot ever you know, fully dive into, but largely, um, no. No. <laughs>
1: Mm -hmm. Especially when you're following objective measures like we do, you know, again, returning should be based off of physical uh, criteria to be safe and be prepared. And oftentimes we regularly see people having a huge gap, like massive gap at that time. Um, So I would say that, you know, again, the more we're actually like holding ourselves accountable versus just saying, hey, six months, you're good that alone will set the bar in the right place.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, like one caveat of thought that I'll give is theoretically, if someone were to meet all return to sport metrics at six months, I still probably wouldn't clear them because the healing process of a graft to remodel as a ligament takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually building up to its full strength and capacity. Yeah. which again is just going to be a, a risk thing that maybe every other structure, your muscles, hips, and everything can support you. But if you get put into a position that your ligament needs to be able to withstand some type of force, but it's not quite there, you might run the risk of tearing it easier than if you waited a few more months and let it get stronger by itself. So there is a function standpoint, but I think there is also looking at a physiological healing standpoint on the strength of the different graphs that you have. So... Yes, I would always wait longer than six months. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: and um, who's the guy in Canada that does the force plate work? Sorry, I'm blanking on his name. Matt Jordan. Matt Jordan had a great study that showed that once you return to play, you had, what, a 10 to 20% drop off on force plate performance at times? Because think about it, like, we've been lifting and training and doing all this stuff just solely in the rehab environment. And then as soon as you return to play, now your time is focused to other things that, yeah, maybe you just hit that peak of, like, strength and you're able to check off some tests but as soon as you return and now you're on the field and doing other stuff, they always saw that consistent drop off. So realize that, like, yeah, you made it, but there's still a lot of work still going up the hill, yeah. especially when you're returning to sport and dividing your efforts.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one, one more thing before I think we've definitely pounded this question into submission is, <laughs>
1: you know, we look at it
0: as there's three steps to this process. There's really return to participation, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, starting to reincorporate with teammates, doing practices, uh, things like that, warm ups. Etc. There's return to play, where you're actually returning to a game situation, um, probably with some form of limitations. And there's return to performance, which is not only have you returned to the game, but you've returned to your prior level of uh, speed of running, goals scored, average points per game, whatever the case may be. And the simple math is that um, only about a third of the athletes will return to that really get. Not only do they get back, but they get back at that same level of performance. So, uh, and that's that's ever not just within six months, but that's you know period at the end of the rehab, multiple years out even. So um, by by six months, I would say it's it's. You know, there's some genetic freaks of nature, and and um, the body can sometimes do amazing things, but largely. No one is going to be at that full return to performance how they were beforehand um, that quickly, really even within that first year. So, all right, um, let's move on. After ACL surgery, how long is it normal to have the quads be asleep,
2: Quote in quotes?
1: Dr. Brett, didn't you just write a post on this? <laughs> I did.
2: I'll start by addressing it and saying I like to have a goal of good quad contraction within a week to two weeks after the surgery. And what I mean by a good quad contraction, um, I usually use like an objective measure of a straight leg raise, which if you've had ACL surgery, you probably are well aware of what that is. But uh, you can fully straighten your knee and lift your leg without letting your knee bend at all, which is a sign that the quads are functioning fairly well. Um, but sometimes I have seen where it takes people a little bit more time, maybe three to four weeks. But I think if you're persisting past four weeks, that's usually a time when we want to be able to start doing some more. And I would say that's where you really want to get on your high horse of getting the quads back as much as you possibly can if it's extending past that time frame. Yeah. See
0: www.kineticsmp.com and go to the blog for Brett's <laughs> yeah. full post on this. Um, and Check out our Instagram too. We've got a, a whole Daily week's uh, worth of quad-type exercises uh, for early in the rehab process there. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it just came
1: out yesterday, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely sooner than later um, on, on the quads. But there's a, even once the quads are quote unquote not asleep anymore, so you're able to get volitional muscle contraction, there's going to be a strength deficit that lingers for an extended period of time. Yeah. Um,
1: just because you can flex them doesn't mean mm-hmm. they're at full capacity, right? Either.
0: So just keep that in mind. There's the getting them to wake up, but then there's actually rebuilding strength, and and uh, that's going to take a much longer time. Yeah, months of work, absolutely. Okay, what is different in rehab if I get my ALL reconstructed as well? This is a, a ligament that's generally on the outside of your knee. Um, the surgery's recently been done a little bit more. The most common uh, place that I've heard it used is in uh, revision surgeries. So, when you've had a second ACL injury to the same knee, um, at times they'll, uh, I've been hearing doctors then looking to reconstruct the ALL as well. Uh, My understanding is that it's believed to give some additional uh, rotary stability to that knee. It's not something that in our area where our clinic is, we're seeing um, very much of right now. Um, So it's not something that we have as a group have had a lot of firsthand experience with. I've had a couple patients um, at a previous clinic that that the doctors in that area were doing it more commonly. Um, So that's just a little bit of a background on what it is. Brad, I know you were kind of doing some, some digging on what, what you would change in your approach with this.
2: Um, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, so the, all it has to do with, like Mike said, it was like the rotary stability of the knee. Um, from a rehab perspective, it doesn't change a lot. That being said, if someone did not have their ALL reconstructed, it's not that I'm not thinking about their knee stability and rotary stability, because I am. So if I'm already thinking about that, it's going to be included in someone who had this reconstruction anyways, maybe depending on a surgeon's protocol, weight bearing or progression to cutting or running things might be delayed slightly, but not much is usually if you have a well-rounded rehab, um, not much from a PT perspective would change. Yeah.
0: I think this is like a good time to talk about it too. Just like our view of protocols from physicians are we, I describe it as the speed limit. So, Um, The the surgeon gives us the protocol and um, we won't go faster than they want to because they see us as they they understand the biologic tissue healing, how strong the repair was, how everything went in surgery, things of that nature. Um, But we will never do something because a piece of paper tells us to. And so we are very big on objective um, progressions and having a criteria based approach and not just going off of a protocol and so, um, from from our perspective, it's not going to change a lot because we're making decisions based on um, your function. So if it takes you longer having that procedure to get your knee range of motion or get your quad active or uh, restore to a normal gait, well, we're going to slow down not because of a protocol or a specific procedure, but because it took you longer to hit those milestones. Um, so that's kind of our approach in general, and it doesn't we don't have to adapt as much to some of these um, other procedures that happen because it just fits into what we're doing anyways. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything for,
1: I concur. (laughs) I concur. (laughs) Okay.
0: Okay. This is a question we got twice. So this must be something that many people are having, um, asked in slightly different ways, but, um, how can I improve fully extending my knee when I jump? And then the same question, but when I jump off of one leg, so it sounds like, um, Maybe something common going on is people are feeling like they can't get their knee all the way straight when they're trying to jump or push off.
2: First thing I would say is can you get your knee straight, period? Yeah. So if you can't because of some reason, that's probably going to be your limiting factor. No matter what cues you do or exercises you do, you probably won't be able to straighten it when you jump still. So if you check off that box first and foremost. Otherwise, I find a lot of it is cueing, um, whether telling someone how to jump, or telling someone to jump over something or onto something Um, one example is if you're just jumping onto a box and the box is really really high i find a lot of people will just try to jump quickly but then bring their legs up to get up to the box and they never fully extend whereas if i use a six inch box instead of that 30 inch box and i just try to hover above the box before i land and jump as high as i can get your head to the ceiling usually people will make that change and just try to get as long as possible instead of just trying to jump up onto the box, it's thinking more about getting long and tall versus getting up onto something is usually a pretty quick fix.
1: I think too, I I totally agree. Like if I see that that lack of, you know, knee extension, I my first step is look at strength. But I think too, especially after watching some of Brett's work with rate of force development and things like that too. Like it's one thing to be very strong in like nice slow controlled exercises but once it's indicated and safe to be moving at those faster speeds or especially with some resistance and things like that you know maybe it's that you're functionally strong enough but your body doesn't know how to like you don't really know how to put together fast and explosively yet too and that's a lot of things that we work to like train those qualities of the muscle and as you train those qualities it then makes jumping very easy because it's kind of like you're just stacking up the pieces and putting them together so you know, yes, could it be a strength thing? Could it be a cueing thing? But I think there's a little bit of gray area in the middle Mm -hmm. of all those things about how your body expresses that strength and things like that. And someone too can also be like, are you nervous? Mm -hmm. Is this new? You know, because that's definitely part of it too, is people can be a little gun shy about really being explosive the first couple of times. So put that in the back of your mind too, if that could be a factor.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think um, really good points. Just I, what I'd take away, especially if there's any younger clinicians listening to this, um, kind of the, the problem-solving aspect of this whenever you're working with somebody is is you should be asking yourself why. Not just always let me try to set find a different way to get them to do this thing, but take a step back and look at is this what we call like a capacity problem? Like they mm-hmm. don't have the capacity to do this movement either, as Brett mentioned, they're lacking just range of motion or you're lacking strength or rate of force development or whatever the case may be if we have those things then um then it's about what type of tasks are we incorporating and maybe it's just going backwards in these situations i'd just be curious like do you see the same problem when you're just doing a squat or a single leg squat Mm -hmm. um if you're doing some type of like a marching sprinting um bounding anything Mm -hmm. like that are you seeing the same pattern through all of those things or is it just trying to jump um jump that you're seeing it so those would be the things that I'd uh, look at. In terms of working on it, this is going to be very specific based on what that problem um, is. But I would just, we would always say if, if it's, let's assume it's not a capacity problem, that you have range of motion, you have strength. Um, kind of as Brett mentioned, just going back towards an easier variation or a slightly different variation and just working through that pattern and then progressing back to that um, situation that you're seeing that lack of extension. So. Okay, um, this is another one that we've gotten multiple different times, both from the questions yesterday and then also people just uh, making comments on some of our posts recently, but how does uh, meniscus repair impact an ACL
2: recovery? I can start with this one just because I have a few of my caseload. Um, Usually, it slows it down a little bit. So, reasons for that is when meniscus is repaired versus being snipped out, there actually is things that need to be healed and the meniscus is like the shock absorber kind of in between the bones of the knee. So what we'll do is kind of slow rehab. Initially, Um, you may be limited in weight bearing right after surgery for a extended period of time, four to six weeks. Sometimes the surgeon will even go longer than that or depends. Sometimes they'll let you weight bear right away, but they'll put you in the knee brace and lock it out so you can't bend it. And it's just in a means to protect the meniscus while it is healing. And then even further from that is usually range of motion in bending is going to be limited to around 90 degrees for up to 12 weeks, sometimes even longer. Because as we bend the knee, the meniscus goes through more compression on certain parts and you don't want to risk irritating that repair. So those are usually the guide rails that change our rehab approach is going to be weight bearing initially. um, And then bend ranges of motion of flexion later on and then after that point things usually tend to go fairly similarly yeah and this is something
0: that i think it's changing a lot in the in the literature right now and um, i'm going to give a little bit of a word to the wise to some of the pt students because i think there's a there's a growing trend that when you look at the literature um, there's not necessarily a large difference in the Effect of some of the restrictions after having surgery um, for meniscus repair and, and people that don't have those restrictions. But there's still different parts of the meniscus undergo different amounts of stress mm-hmm. with different movements. And when we don't always know exactly where that tear was and what was done, you know, we're really leaving it up to the surgeons to have the understanding of. Um, why they want those restrictions. And I think it's important to, yes, stay abreast of the research and have an understanding that we might not have to protect these as much, but still having a dialogue with the surgeon about maybe that tear is in a specific spot where doing a specific thing will really put stress through it. And, and having to respect that um, is, is important because you weren't necessarily in the surgery scene what was done and how it looked and how many sutures they had to do, um, et cetera. So um, I think it's something that we are starting to see change a little bit where some of those repair or some of those restrictions are being dialed back. but um, it does need to be a case by-case basis and if you have the opportunity, I really encourage you to get with the surgeon and just get on the same page in those situations.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's definitely a balance between this new literature and you know trying to take some of the benefits of what they're finding, but still be respectful. And realize that that dialogue is good because it opens both parties' eyes to what can be done to better the rehab process. But um, definitely have that conversation with your surgeon if you're going to press forward.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, What are some symptoms of a cyclops lesion? You will the post on this one, so (laughs) go ahead, Dr. Michael. So this is one that I've seen um, several times. Uh, A lot of the people that we work with in our clinic They don't necessarily start their rehab with them. We pick a lot of people up at the 12, 16-week point of their recovery. And at times, we'll see people that have large range of motion deficits, um, and it's really too late, quote-unquote, to get it. So a cyclops lesion is essentially if you don't get full knee extension within the first couple weeks after surgery, um, we can get scar tissue formation that will basically block your knee from getting all the way straight and it can put pressure on the graft. So, um, I missed it initially the first time that I ever saw this as a young clinician. Um, I don't think I ever will again because in retrospect, it's it's much more obvious. Well, in, my,
1: patient gotten later
0: yeah, too. in my experience, um, they'll start to experience soreness, sometimes uh, not necessarily swelling within the joint, but some just kind of general puffiness around the outside of their kneecap. And as you try to progress, Anything that will um, that requires them to like drive into full knee extension will be painful. So um, trying to progress into sprinting drills or running drills like A-marches, A-skips, etc., they'll start to experience kind of pain sensation, um, a tightness. They'll, they'll describe it much more inside their knee, whereas initially, post-operatively, a lot of times it'll be like a stretch in the back of their knee, something, something tight in the back, or be limited by swelling etc with this they, they tend to feel like it's inside their joint just kind of vague and um, every time you try to push a little bit farther and, and um, progress their knee will kind of bark at you and you just sort of feel like you're spinning your wheels yeah. and at that point we always recommend you go back to the doctor get it worked up if it is there it's not a big deal it is a second procedure which is never good but um, they can take that scar tissue off and most of the time, people wake up and you're sore like the first day or two because you did have another minor procedure. But the next week, you feel better. So
1: yeah, it's a, definitely like the ones that we've received later in their process. It was kind of like they were stalling out and having pain, and those two things are kind of indicators that went hand in hand. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So get your extension. Early. Yeah, get mm-hmm. your
1: knees straight. <laughs>
0: yeah. All
1: right. How do you manage
0: chondral uh, defects associated with ACL injury throughout the course of PT? This is a good one. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: do you have any thoughts? Generally, it's taking just a little bit more caution in the slower progression, especially as you start uh, weight bearing and doing more plyometric type stuff and just being more aware that it's there and you might, flare something up or just kind of be on the front end if you start noticing more and more, but generally otherwise it's just a little bit slower progression. Yeah. I think this is the big question in
0: ACL rehab that most surgeons, I mean, we've gotten to the point, if you go to a good doctor that does a lot of ACL rehabs, um, you know, that does at least 20 if not more in a year, the the surgical technique for ACLs is relatively well established now. There's, there's variations and people are always continuing to uh, improve, but you know, most of the time we're pretty confident that the graft gets placed in generally the right position and the knee ends up being pretty stable. Um, but for long-term joint health, I think just some of the doctors that I've talked to, it's kind of these, these um, OCDs or, or cartilage issues that potentially can be going on in the knee um, from the result of the mechanism of injury And that's what they get concerned about because there's not yet a great procedure or anything else to deal with them. My best, uh, the best example that I had of dealing with this, and I was privileged to be um, uh, with the Green Bay Packers, and we had an athlete that went through this, or actually two, and the doctor, you know, is in the training room every day. So in that medical team environment where you're interacting with all these professionals, and he was actually able to give us guidance on that there was a defect and at what degree of knee flexion it engaged at and so early in the rehab we were able to stay off like stay off of loading that part of the joint but we were able to load around it so we had two players that happened almost at the same time but one engaged near full knee extension and the other engaged near full knee flexion and so Um, early on their rehab, we were able to load both of them, but like their exercises were always flipped. Like one was going into deep motion, one was going more shallow. So it was uh, interesting, but that was very helpful for me. And something that if it's something that you notice in an op report as a therapist, um, I would encourage you to reach out to the doctor and see if you can get more information on um, where it is and if they have any guidance um, going forward with that.
1: Absolutely. I guess I'll just kind of continue to reiterate what they're saying about, you know, being smart about these things is that I've had players who have had OCDs gone terrible, that I have had very young athletes with knees that look like 50, 60, 70-year-olds, you know, so these things are really worth respecting and being intelligent about your loading progressions and things like that because they can be a little bit, for lack of a better term, like the silent killer. They can create some discomfort, but... Um, just be respectful of because this is something that we don't have a great procedure for yet. That's, I mean, there are a lot of procedures out there, but we're all, it's a constant evolution that, um, you know, we just got to be smart about it.
0: Okay. Last, uh, question from the, from the public here is discharge from PT, um, three months ago. I think I'm reading this correctly. Either discharge from PT at three months or discharge from PT three months ago um and still wearing
2: a brace is that common no generally yeah generally it depends on the brace so one i want to just specify yeah. that if it's the same big knee extension brace that you got right after surgery i would say probably not um, unless there's a reason for it but if it's just a small kind of knee stabilizer brace then that's a different story um but it shouldn't be something that I think should necessarily be relied on. Hopefully you've established confidence and the right strength and everything like that. So you're not feeling unstable, like you feel like you need it. Um, But otherwise, if you were discharged from PT three months ago, hopefully you're at a good point where I would say that I wouldn't use it and you try to build some confidence in yourself and getting away from it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think Brett hit it, especially if it's a post-op brace.
0: like the big locking hinge one, definitely not common. Um, but there's a lot of caveats to this. Like, are you talking about wearing it all the time? Are you talking about wearing like a sport brace when you go back to sports? um And and we always come back to why. So if you if you don't have good quad control yet, then yeah, we'd absolutely encourage you to still wear the brace because that's a, know, safety yeah, right it's a safety issue. Yeah, it's a safety issue. I would expect you to still be in PT at that point if, if that was still going on. So um, a lot of caveats, but in general, not, um, not something we'd really expect to see like wearing a post-op brace after. Yeah.
1: I mean, on sport, like on field braces, you know, there are still a good chunk of surgeons who really want that athletic brace for the first one year. Um, and that's surgical. That's surgeon preference. You know, our goal is that we're doing enough work and building enough strength and stability and safety in all of these less than predictable movements that we can create in our clinic and that you create in your practice situations and your proper progressions of your athletic buildup that you should feel prepared when you're returning back to the field in those progressions like Michael talked about. That's why we go through those that stepwise progression of entering your warm ups, doing technical work, building that up too, because then your knee should really be coinciding with the level of activity that you're participating in. But sometimes even despite all of that work and that security, there are some surgeons that just still very much have that comfort zone. And again, that's the balance of working on a medical team, that everyone's playing into that equation. Um, And sometimes it can be a conversation point. So there is definitely that conversation about like, should I be wearing a brace during sport or not? And I think too, it's a little bit sport dependent, Um, you know? So again, a lot of caveats to all this, but I think you guys kind of covered the surgical brace versus athletic brace. Our goal is that if, if we're talking about sport braces,
0: um, we, we leave it up to the patient yeah. and the doctor and the family cause it's yeah. a personal decision. Um, and the, the literature is, is mixed. There's some studies that show difference. There's some studies that don't, it's kind of dependent. Um, we're not against it per yeah. se. What I, what I would encourage everyone is I would encourage you to feel so strong in your knee, like so confident with how you rehab, with your strength, with everything that you've done. That you don't want, like you don't don't want to, you don't feel like you need it. You might do it because you're told to, (laughs) you're told to, or it's just an extra security blanket. But if you're feeling like my knee isn't stable and I need this external support to feel confident going on the field, that would be a red flag for me. Just about you're your not ready. preparedness. Yeah. So mm-hmm.
1: there's a lot of studies that have been about like that intuition of how your com- your confidence in your body and when you actually are ready, mm-hmm. and if you have that like lingering doubt, that's an indicator usually of where your body's at as well. Yeah. All
0: right, we uh, burned through a lot of questions there. Um, let's just go through a couple of things. Just these are some that we got from different students that um, have been around and suggested. Um, or, or things that just as a staff, we just briefly want to discuss on the podcast. So um, we want to talk about the importance of the early stage of ACL
2: rehab. I can hit on this. Um, so I think I did a blog post on it. Yeah, you did. Yep. And, and you did a webinar on yeah. it too. Yeah. It's, it's critical because it <laughs> sets the foundation of everything moving forward. So if you don't have a good early stage, you can't expect that the later stages are going to be pristine either. So you need to set a good foundation early on, get the basics done, get a good quad contraction, get your range of motion. These things are super, super, super important, even if they're somewhat boring. Mm-hmm. So find some type of pleasure in the monotony of doing these easy things, because it really will pay off that in six months down the road, we're still not working on something that we should have at two months. So you're consistently just building upon the next thing until you're reaching, getting back to what you want to be able to do. So. These first few months, even weeks right after surgery, aren't the most fun, but don't see them as any less training than your later stages when you're actually having fun playing with teammates or doing the explosive things, the highlight reels that you see on social medias and different things like that, is these are just as important, if not more important than those later stuff.
1: Yeah. Preach. This isn't, yeah,
2: this isn't,
0: these exercises aren't gonna make you instagram famous um you're not going to get any followers as you're doing your quad sets <laughs> and uh, see knee extensions but they are really Dr. Important. Brett
1: will like your straight leg raise though if it's <laughs> totally straight
0: yeah so, um this is something i touched on again in a podcast last week with rob lamb um because we don't there's some evidence that does show at six months if you're what we'd kind of quote-unquote say is behind but not hitting some of these criteria. Um, It does indicate it's gonna take a longer time for you to get back to sport or you might not get all the way back to sport or you might have some of these um, problems, but the evidence isn't as strong. We would, I would just say anecdotally in our clinic, um, athletes that we pick up at the three, four, five month mark that are relatively behind And we've seen a lot of these with quad indexes, the quad strength metrics still decreased by um, 50 to 60% in some cases. It takes those athletes much longer to get back. You know, if it's five months and you're still 50% or less on your quad strength, you know, in my opinion, I'm no longer really talking to that athlete about the nine month mark. We're now talking to like, hopefully we'll get back by 12, but we've had some that it lingers forever. And because the way that I think about it is you have to think about, um, you know, if you don't hit your ACL rehab the right way, um, early, you've maybe got four to six weeks after the injury before, before surgery that you're not really doing much. So you're getting just general muscle atrophy and kind of detrained. Then you have surgery, you've got a couple of weeks that we can't really do much regardless other than work on range of motion. But now we're, you know, it's stacking up. You're not, you're not loading enough. You're not doing building strength. So that muscle atrophy continues over this period of time. And by four or five months, you know, you haven't really done much for a while. And it just takes time to build that back up. Additionally, when we're talking about the range of motion, the cyclops lesions earlier, If you don't get that full knee extension, now you've got another procedure and yes, it's, it's minor, but that's another setback that, you know, just slows you down. So um, it's so important, especially if you're someone that does want to really push for returning at that nine-month mark that you're really on a timetable or something, a goal that you're shooting for, like that first third of your ACL rehab is crucial. So um, this is something that uh, Brett did a, a webinar on last weekend, actually, and um, we've got the recording, so if you're listening to this, miss the webinar um, and you're interested? Shoot us a, a DM on Instagram, and I'd be happy to send that uh, webinar recording over to you guys. Okay, how do we objective? How do we use objective testing throughout the ACL rehab process?
2: A lot of ways. Probably pretty much every session someone's in, whether it's immediately post-op to later stage, um, measuring range of motion, looking at different strength metrics. We use are fortunate fortunate enough to have handheld dynamometers, so we can actually put force numbers in pounds and compare that over time and to your other leg as well. Um, So I'll usually do that like weekly, pretty much. It's really quick to be able to do. And then depending on the test, space it out more. Uh, We are also fortunate fortunate enough to have force plates. So once someone's able to jump or even do squatting on both legs, I have someone jump on force plates to show them how much they're shifting side to side. Um, if they're favoring one side versus another, and we save all this data just to be able to track over time. So I'd say pretty much every time someone's in, I'm tracking something, and I can look at it over time, seeing if someone's making progress, seeing if there's something that I could be doing to help that they still have a deficit in, and it just helps guide things a little bit more. And then, again, if I'm tracking more frequently, it's not running into the issue of if we do an objective test, every, just once a month and you come in on a bad day and you aren't seeing progress, um, this is just another way to combat that, that as long as you're seeing that progress over time, even if it's up and down here and there, it's still progress to be able to look at.
0: Yeah, we we utilize um, objective testing. We're trying to go away from, we don't love the idea of having like a return to play test day, quote unquote, where you come in you do a test and all of a sudden you're clear like we think it should be a gradual process over time of a consistent demonstration that you are hitting these milestones and able to sustain them even as we progress your activities we look at the objective testing as a way to drive our decision making and our interventions and so it's not a separate thing it's literally how we do the rehab where what exercise are we are we choosing when do you jump what jumps do we choose? How high of a box do we utilize? When do we start to do different jump variations, etc.? We we are using the objective measurements that we're able to collect to make these decisions to choose the right tasks and interventions for the individual. You know, the example with the force plates is um, we can break down the phases of the jumps. And so someone that has a problem with force absorption, more so than force production might have a different set of jumping exercises than the ACL athlete right next to them with the same surgery date that plays the same sport but has a problem producing force, right? They might be working on very similar things, but one's going to be doing jump variations that emphasize force absorption and one's going to be doing jump variations that emphasize force production. And we could go through our entire curriculum for ACL rehab and point out all these individual things that are, we're not reinventing the wheel each time. We have a, a general yeah, structure, but we are individualizing it. And it's directly tied to what we're able to assess and measure. So um, to us, it's not something that's separate. And it's not something that's like a one-day occurrence. It's just how we do things.
1: I, I second that. <laughs> I have a very well said I yeah. can't add much more.
0: My, my favorite analogy right now with all this stuff is from Matt Jordan um, in a uh, class from Altus. And the analogy that they use is that um, using force plates in particular, but I think really objective measurements in general is like predicting the weather. Like the the uh, the weatherman says if there's a 60% chance of rain, you are going to bring an umbrella with you. It, it drives your behavior change for us what we're going to do is um, change your intervention, which for us is exercise. But one test at nine months or six months or whenever you have that test does not tell us anything about how your on-field performance is going to be in six more months or a year. It's at that point, it's totally meaning, meaningless. It might tell us how you're going to do tomorrow potentially, but um, it can be meaningful if you use it to drive uh, behavior change and And for us, that's how we dictate your exercise prescription.
1: Well, I guess the only thing I'll add to that is like we are so lucky to have the depth of objective measurements that we do. Um, And I think Dr. Michael can speak to this. He's better at quoting research than I am, as you will learn this about us. (laughs) Um, He's my walking encyclopedia. But there's even like, what was the strength deficit that they could still have even if they passed their jump test? So, like, this is the beauty of having more than just one test. Uh,
0: 60 to... 60... I don't remember I exactly. know it's under a
1: quote, but a generalization. It's more than was. you think.
0: It's more than you think. With having a... Do not quote me on this. Like, yeah. 70% quad mm-hmm. index deficit. they could still pass a HOP test. The most interesting part was that they had a corresponding, like, 30% increase in hip extension strength on that same side. So, they learned how to compensate... By using their hip rather than their knee to complete the jump. But I just
1: use this point to highlight that having more than one type of objective measure is really important too to give that bigger picture. And that um, this is also what has come out of some of the literature of, of really pushing for more than just jump testing as you're clearing criteria and things like that. We know that we need more, and I know not every clinic has all the great things that we do but that's also the beauty of searching out someone who has those things to be able mm-hmm. to provide you with those measures to make sure you really are checking off the boxes to be safe for things like return to activity criteria and so on and so forth mm-hmm.
0: all right well i think we're going to uh, wrap that up for our first kinetic roundtable discussion we're going to do these hopefully every month um, so I'll keep watching online because we'll keep taking questions for whatever topic we're going to address um, if you like this style episode, please let us know. Drop a, a message in the comments, shoot us a DM, um, let us know, and we'll continue to do more of them. And uh, hopefully, you guys found this helpful. So, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And learn something new that will help you achieve your goals. If you did, we would love for you to head over to Instagram and search MKE Sports Podcast. Like, follow, or comment on today's episode. If you have questions, comments, topics, or guest suggestions, reach out through that Instagram account. Your feedback will help us make this podcast as relevant and informative as possible. If you have additional time, we'd appreciate your help in spreading this information. If you could head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, it will help us spread the word to more athletes in the greater Milwaukee area. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.